You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bloom and Tech. I'm your host, David Bloom. Once again, we are kicking at the rubble of the collision of media, tech, and entertainment to see if we can find a few golden nuggets of uh, wisdom and knowledge and information that we can use to make our way through this crazy world that, that is Hollywood and the technology-enabled universe um, around us. I've been spending a lot of time lately looking at influencer marketing. was at a conference, the Internet um, the Influencer Marketing Conference and Expo uh, about two weeks ago now, had a great conversation there on stage with Drika Linkenecht, who is the former Global VP of Influencer Marketing and Collaborations with Nike, among other things she did there for 20 years with the shoe giant. I also talked with uh, Igor Vox, who is the head, uh, CEO, and founder of company called Creator IQ, which works a lot with influencers and brands to tie them together. Part of the conversation that I've had with them and others, a lot of folks, and end up writing stories for both Forbes and for TubeFilter about this, new online privacy rules and Google's decision to end the use of cookies to target advertising, making a big change in the way influencers are being perceived by brands. They are becoming more and more important, in part because companies can no longer get to those first-party data sources that they used to be able to get from other outlets. New privacy laws have really constricted what's available out there, and influencers still have access to one of the biggest troves of direct audience information in the world. I... um, Brands still want to know, however, how their campaigns are doing, and they want to make sure that they're connecting with the right audiences in compelling ways. That's where influencer campaigns come in. The influencers themselves have access to the first-party data from their own followers, data they can legally share in aggregated and anonymized form for a specific campaign with a specific brand. For smart companies, it can be a goldmine. That shift has been underway for a while. Um, It's taken off, though, in these last few months with fleets of influencers authenticating their social media accounts so they can take part in this gold rush. That allows brands and tech partners such as Creator IQ and Nike and so many others to facilitate the data sharing for a given campaign and influencer. For influencers, it's been a goldmine, too, for brands looking to make deals. Even nano-influencers, those with just a few thousand followers, are getting offers as part of big campaigns that may enlist 30,000 or more influencers at a time for a big campaign. The influencer data is valuable, even helping companies understand what's working beyond the campaign itself. That's combining with a growing awareness that reach isn't nearly as important as deep connections with those who authentically care about a brand or product. And there's no doubt it can work. Even influencer marketing insiders say they can be swayed by the right influencer's endorsement. One of them, Sybil Grieb, a former head of influencer marketing for Edelman here in the U.S., told me that she had uh, heard a podcast, of all things, by uh, the author and influencer Tim Ferriss talking about Wealthfront, a financial services company, online financial services company, talked about it on his podcast. She said the key message was that I could have seen the brands at 100 times saying we're great, and it would have only served a reminder that she needed to do more research herself because all the brands say that they're great. Uh, 
Grebe, who has her own consultancy now called 100 Hats, said having Tim Ferriss say they are great was something she trusted much more. Um, he's known for his deep dive on research. He's the right influencer speaking to the right target audience with the right offer and an incentive to do it then. It was a win for her and for the brand when she signed up. I think that's a good example of how it all comes together when it's done right. Uh, with depth comes a much deeper relationship between the brand and influencer. We're seeing a lot more partnerships that go on well beyond a single campaign. And you're seeing companies pull all this stuff in-house so they can have better knowledge of the information itself, the data, not depending on a third-party agency, and so that they can build long-term relationships with some of these influencers. I think it's really going to be interesting, and I'd love to hear you stick around uh, after a message coming up with my conversation with Drika Linkonnect from Nike, uh, formerly with Nike, now doing her own consulting around the world, and she is a fascinating person who has a very... I think a really compelling uh, message about uh, the importance of storytelling, even in things like influencer marketing. And then some conversation with Igor, who is a thoughtful guy himself and has done some, he has some uh, background long before he created Creator IQ, uh, tying brands together with influencers and now is doing it at a high level for um, people like um, Disney and Unilever and dozens of others. Anyway, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Next up is my conversation with Igor Vax, the CEO and founder of Creator IQ, an agency that connects uh, big brands, dozens of them, with uh, follow with uh, influencers, thousands of them, to make sure that campaigns are run well and smartly and connect with the right audiences and uh, give feedback and data that uh, the brands can use to do lots of interesting stuff. So here's my conversation with Igor. So Igor, what I wanted to talk with you about how we, we go forward in this post-cookie era and Influencer marketing was sort of seen as like the kid brother of marketing in the in the digital era by a lot of folks. But all of a sudden, there's a, a way, it, it becomes this way for people to get a lot of first party, really good data and direct connection and engagement and eventually, you know, sales and all that with what's happening with Instagram and uh, YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really sort of had an opportunity here for influencer marketing to take another step, which I think is a pretty fascinating thing. Google made its decision, what, just about a month ago. I mean, it's a big deal, and I don't think the industry is fully processed yet. To start with, let's just talk about what this means for influencer marketing, the, the post-cookie era. What does that mean from your perspective at, at Creator IQ? What attracted me to, uh, to the field in the first place was if you do it right, you're not going to be able to make it programmatic. You're not going to be able to do it at scale. And the whole authenticity, real people, yeah. uh, gets, gets yeah. lost when you make it programmatic. One way or another, everybody wants to make everything programmatic, and then it just blends into sort of the crowd, the disruptive advertising space. Mm. That also means you're not going to be able to go and spend $100 billion on it. There's only so many authentic people and only so much real mm. content you can create. Uh, but it's a really, really good catalyst for a lot of other things that uh, not, not just marketers and PR, but also, you know, just in customer relationships and uh, employee advocate space. 
as that you can do as a seed because you know, creators on their data, you know, what it means for creator IQ. You know, what are a processor? We're helping brands and creators for facilitating those relationships. Uh, creator owns the data. They can authenticate. They do authenticate. They have, uh, they give first party data, first party real reach, first party views, first party audience data to the brands where we're facilitating that with technology. It just means that uh, there is more real, true signals uh, to use uh, that come out of influence marketing as a seed for the greater marketing tech stack for greater marketing ecosystem. But again, they own their data. So this is an interesting thing to think about because I don't think this has been well understood in this. I mean, we're really, we're a month and a half into the California Privacy Act, uh, two a year and a half into GDPR in Europe. The Google decision is a few weeks old. People really haven't processed as you say, they own their data. So what what do they own that that otherwise isn't available? Just can you just sort of detail that? Well uh, and, and maybe owning their data is a little bit of a simplification because at the end of the day, if they are on YouTube, they're getting their metrics from Google. And if they're on Instagram or they're getting their metrics from Facebook. But uh, you know Google, Facebook are encouraging creators to generate content and they're giving them analytics and first party metrics and the creators when they do branded content projects are sharing it with the brands right so it's uh, data on their audiences data on the reach of the posts on the videos that they create and we found them to be you know great 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 signals uh, for how things perform again this is when creator is working with a brand and uh uh, as part of working with a brand. They're not just creator content, they're not just posting it. And uh, just uh, maybe for a little bit of background, Instagram Insights, Facebook, uh, Graph API, I mean, that's it, it, the metrics that Instagram, Facebook provide to creators. Similarly, YouTube provides metrics to creators. Those metrics are available programmatically through the APIs and those metrics creators make available to brands when they work yeah. with them on projects to show, hey, here is what I did for you, and here is yeah. what happened. So, create, so basically, you know, they, create, give, they give them access to the feed, but there's not anything in the laws that are out there now that prevent, I mean, just to be absolutely clear here, there's nothing in what the laws say now that prevents somebody to say, here's who I've got, here's who's coming in and talking to me and responding to me. I put this post up, and I've got, and it's 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 not. I mean, I want to make sure this is generally data that's not specific to. I mean, you could go in I, if you're a creator, you could go in and say it's Joe Blow you know, at Joe Blow on Twitter or whatever. But basically, it's really more the demographics of the audience and it, it, how many it, folks did stuff, right? Exactly, exactly. It's anonymized data. It's the same thing that you get in paid media. It is not individual data. So it's not individual right. targeting data. It's anonymized uh, what is the real reach and what are the real views and what are the audience segments that responded yeah. to it. Yeah. Right. So not, yeah. But, so it's not nothing that would be touched by legislation because it's anonymized. And but again, it's uh, it's also tends to be pretty targeted. I mean, I guess the, the 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 more micro the influencer, the more targeted the audience. Correct. 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 But you know that's the, the same thing with. Uh, anything, whether the influencer is on Instagram, on Twitch, on Facebook, or if it's uh, 
somebody who just has a fan base offline, right? You know who their fan base is and you're trying to speak to that fan base. Are you seeing brands beginning to understand what this means? I mean, I'm sure you're having conversations left and right trying to get the word out, but are they getting it? Are they, is, I mean, is this like the next opportunity for these folks? As you say, they can't get quite the same scale, but they can certainly get substantial engagement. I think I think directionally brands have been getting it, and you know one of the data points that we see just you know among our clients is uh, creators authenticating their Instagram and YouTube and Facebook accounts to get Facebook mm-hmm. data and provide it to brands has uh, grown uh, many many x uh, right now two thirds of creators in our campaigns provide this data mm-hmm. to brands. That was a small fraction only two years ago, maybe 15% two years ago. What exactly it means to the latest set of changes, uh, that still needs to shake out. But sure. directionally, everything has been moving this way now for years. Really, what, when you talk about authenticating, they're getting essentially the equivalent of the blue check mark from Twitter on the other accounts to say, I am that person. That person is, this is my account, they're, they're, not somebody else's. They're, they're doing a little bit more. They're also okay. saying... Here is my Twitter. Here is the data that Twitter is providing me. Here is yeah, the audience yeah. data. Here is the rich data and brand. Here is uh, I'm giving you permission to see this data. And then you all become something of a an intermediary in terms what, of what are, bringing bringing that data to the to the brand. What, what, right? what, to borrow a GDPR terminology, we're a data processor. We're just okay. providing the technology to facilitate the interactions. So they'll come in. What will happen is you have a relationship with the with the uh, the influencers, a connection with them. They they use you as the spigot, the intermediary, the data processor to get stuff. And then the brand comes in and says, "We want to do a deal with X people who can uh, talk about leather boots, say." And okay, here's all the shoe, here's all the shoe influencers, right? Or here's all the fashion mm-hmm. influencers, bing, 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 bing. And here's the ones that live in Texas or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And you, you can provide that sort of slice for them. And then the flip side is on the back end, because you have the authenticated data, you are able to then provide that to them, uh, to the brands to say, here's how it went. That's, that's one of the use cases. Another one. Often enough, brand is already working with an influencer or they have an idea okay. who they want to work with, but they're using our technology as a backbone where they would send an influencer a link, which is you know mm-hmm. our link to say, hey, enter your information here, provide all the permissions. And a brand would have a, you know, sometimes 500, sometimes 30,000 creators that they're working with and tracking their data and activating 30, their campaigns. Well, if you think of uh, super fans, if you think of uh, micro influencers, and if you think of a large brand uh, spread across many geographies with different verticals, yeah, that's yeah, that's about right. And uh, we actually have some that are bigger, but you know they're in a large size. And yeah. by the way, when when the creator provides the data to the brand, we don't share it with other brands. This is only yeah. you know between the creator and the brand, almost like Salesforce. That makes total sense, and and that probably avoids any problems down the road that might crop up 
with another layer of privacy legislation, for instance. Exactly, because, yeah, the creator is giving specific permission to one brand. We're facilitating it. We're tracking it for them. We're the honest third-party broker that keeps everything together, but we don't Mm -hmm. share that. If that creator wants to give data to another brand, then they'll have to explicitly give them permission. We wouldn't share. Right, right. But the brands are using it for a lot of signals. See what content is performing, uh, in what channels that they can put paid against. Sometimes we have clients who use content offline and even use some of the audience online audience information for offline. It's not just at the top of the funnel. It's not just brand awareness stuff. You know, we're seeing more and more sophisticated uh, opportunities, even uh, attribution for actual mm-hmm. sales as Instagram becomes more of a social commerce site. And certainly Facebook's pushing that as hard as it can. YouTube's got some of that component as well. I got to imagine it's only a matter of minutes before Twitch starts yeah. to offer it. Yeah. Right. I mean, given yeah. who their own by. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, yeah. take it, take it all the way down the, the funnel is really what we're talking about here. That's the that's the grail, holy grail, right? That, that, that's the holy grail, and we have clients uh, along the entire spectrum, the top mm-hmm. of the funnel who use it as demand gen and then use paid media for the actual conversion, and clients who use it to drive traffic, clicks, and uh, put a pixel or you know a Bitly link or you know UGM code, uh, so they can track. I like what you said, holy grail, because that's when you can really start properly allocating media budgets off of models and numbers versus kind of just different bits and pieces of proof that it works. Yeah. Are are we seeing some shifts? We talk about allocating uh, media budgets. Are we seeing some concomitant shifts in those media budgets more into this? As you say, there's a sort of a natural limit in terms of how many compelling influencers there actually are out there. Are we seeing shifts into the media budgets for, for this operation, though, compared to other areas? So what I, I can tell you what we see from the inside. Everybody is doing some sort of influence marketing. But what we see yeah. is a lot more focus on what's common between paid influencers and your own super fans and PR efforts uh, to a yeah. point where they have brands are hiring expensive white-collar professionals to run influence programs in-house. And, mm-hmm. you know, we sell software to these people, so that's what's been fueling our growth. There's a lot more people to use our software today than okay. there were a year or two years ago. So what they're doing is building the internal operation, not just going to the outside consultants. Like, okay, let's bring this in-house, this, let's control this more, let's know not just sort of our, our hardcore super fans as you put them, and, and lots of brands have them from Disney on down, as well as people who are out there who use our brand but are influencers and have a big audience. So those are two different kinds of operations. But we want to have all that in-house, and we want to use software like what you guys offer to help run that program, to manage that program, particularly if you're talking about tens of thousands of influencers that you're interacting with. Exactly. And if you look at our client list, I mean, that's people, that's exactly what they do. And our brand clients still work with agencies, but uh, uh, yeah. agencies still perform work, but they also want to have the data. They want to see the first-hand performance, and they want to be able to go back and have direct relationships with the influencer who are creating content, not just you know renting them for a little while, mm-hmm. and, ha- and be able to compare them side-to-side from work from other agencies and from their own PR efforts. 
that's an interesting point. I mean, the in-housing process is kind of happening in a lot of parts of the business, but this is mm-hmm. it's also happening here. I you know, you see it with the ad agency stuff, a lot of agencies stuff is getting pulled in at least partly yeah. in-house now. And we're, we're uh, from our end, we're agnostic. We build software from practitioners. So we have great agency clients yeah. who run this program for brands. We have brands who use our agency clients, brands who in-house. Uh, but yeah, what we see is a lot more brands hiring people to run the software. And uh, in fact, that's what, you know, very large. We went from uh, maybe under 5% of brand, direct brand clients three years ago to 65% of our clients are direct brand while our agency business is growing. And that's really the shift in brands hiring people to run these programs. That does say a lot about just overall shifts. One of the conversations, I guess the things that sort of I've always sort of thought about in terms of the way influencer marketing was thought of, it used to get treated like the the kid brother who knew how to program yeah. the uh, controller for the for the audio you know the audio visual system and they could figure out how to fix it all, but they were kind of annoying and you know <laughs> like okay thanks for fixing that now get out of the way and but now it feels like you know they got to take them a little more seriously. He's like oh you grew up you went to Harvard look at that you're getting the fancy pants you got a real job all right fine. you, you know. know I love this analogy. Uh, if you don't mind, I might borrow it. Uh, okay, but, I freely give my stuff away. <laughs> I, 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 no, thank you. Uh, but you know, th- that's what you see every time there is something new and shiny. You know, going back mm-hmm. to I'm old enough to remember paid search. That's something else mm-hmm. an expert did for you before you uh, programmatic. Yeah, you, know, you didn't just buy software. You put a person who ran it for you because it was complicated. It was a yeah, dark yeah. science. <laughs> It, it was shiny. It was interesting. Uh, it was uh, test and experimental budgets. And now it's like, no. It's actually just part of what everybody does. So that's my conversation with Igor Vox. Hang on for just a minute, and we'll be back with a conversation with uh, Drika Lincolnet, uh, former, Viki, uh, former Nike executive and a really smart person doing some really interesting stuff. Uh, worked for Nike for 20 years on three continents doing all kinds of things. So hang on just a bit and we'll be right back. And we're back. Uh, next up is my conversation with Drika Linkinect, the Nike former executive um, who oversaw many things, including the... Um, women's products group for Nike in China for five years. He ran that organization. We had a lot of interesting talks over that day that I was interacting with her uh, about what's going on there and as well what's happening in the collaboration and influencer marketing space and some of the projects she'd done with them and where things are going. So I hope you enjoy this. Drika Link Connect. Hey everybody, it's David Bloom at Tech. Yes. I'm here with Drika Linkenecht, yes. a longtime marketing executive with Nike who is now gallivanting across the globe, consulting on marketing, lots of things. We're here uh, today. We're going to be doing a uh, fireside chat together at the uh, Influencer Marketing Conference and Expo uh, at the LA Convention Center. We managed to get 
Drika to come in from her latest uh, continent-wide tour of Europe uh, to talk a little bit about the future of influencer marketing and, and how it fits in. So Drika, mm -hmm. let's start out real quickly. Uh, just sketch out your time at Nike and what you're doing now. Ooh, well, um, 20 years, can you imagine? I feel, uh, I feel old but fresh in my mind. That's the most important thing. So um, I worked for Nike for 20 years. I would title myself as a global executive in brand marketing and general management and actually I would say I'm a brand innovator and I worked for them uh, for 20 years in three continents. Uh, I worked in Europe, I worked in the States for many years but also in China and uh, I actually, I think why people want to talk to me, uh, the sexy word, right, um, is that I was part of the team that started back then, 15, 20 years ago, the high-touch marketing function and um, the uh, collaborations portfolio. And that was a team. It's, it's always a team effort. But in, in sports, uh, it's not about the individual. It's about the teamwork, which I also believe in. But yeah, I, I, was, uh, I was part of that team that really grew that function into what it has become today. Well, what's interesting, because first of all, let's, let's define the term high-touch. Mm -hmm. I always think back to, there was an influential book back in the 1980s called Megatrends by a guy named John Naisbet. He was a futurist, and one of the things he talked about was as we got more high-tech, there would be a more and more demand for high-touch, for interactions that were where we connected more and weren't just using our digital tools to connect. But high-touch marketing is more than just having, say, an experiential marketing, you know, kind of event or something, right? So what does it all involve? Well, I would say before we talk about high-touch, I would say let's talk about the human race, right? Because the essence of the human race is that life is about people, life is about connections, and life is and, and conversations. And high-touch marketing is an expression of that, right? It's about interacting with people, exchanging with people in cities, in communities. And you can do that from an individual perspective, but you can also do that as a brand. So what would be the sort of sectors of marketing that you would put in there? I mean, it's evolved very much over the last 20 years. What counts as high-touch marketing, I'm sure. But what's in there now, as you look back over your career, what, what sort of sectors of marketing now throw in into that bucket of high touch. Well, for sure, influential marketing. Yeah, that's what we are going to talk to. Uh, we're going to talk about today. The new trend, although it's not uh, a trend anymore, right? Collaborations uh, uh, is is it's it's the new. It's not the trend. It's a for, it's a new norm, right? Everybody is in the business of collaborations nowadays. Especially the influencers, right? I mean, that's what they do. Is that's how they find a new audience and expand theirs, and vice yeah. versa. They help yeah. each other out. Yeah. But it's the same thing with brands. Yes, absolutely. And uh, yeah, we can talk for hours about uh, collaborations on its own because uh, uh, it does when you do them well. Uh, it does energize your brand. Uh, it uh, creates brand affinity, brand growth. But if you don't do them well, it's it's noise or it can harm your brand. Give me an example from your experience of a collaboration you did while at Nike that you helped oversee, mm -hmm. uh, you and your team, that worked out really well, that really helped build the brand, helped build their brand, was a win all the way around. There's many. It's like, you know, which of your children do you prefer, right? There's, there's many. 
The best ones are the ones that uh, stand the test of time. Uh, I would say uh, the partnership that we've done, the collaborations that we've done with someone like uh, Tom Sachs, who is a contemporary artist, uh, someone that is uh, as a mindset far away from the Nike mindset. Huh? Nike is a design company, an innovation company that helps an athlete to help a helps athletes to jump higher. Uh, run faster. It's industrial design, and industrial design is a very clinical design as an expression. Now, Tom Sachs, as an artist, is all about bricolage. Huh? If you look at his art uh, work, he creates these amazing so-called spaceships. But uh, I wouldn't advise to take the spaceship of Tom Sachs because you're not going to get there, right? But um, bringing those two worlds together and creating something together that you cannot uh, create on your own helps both the brand as a connector to youth culture and as, an, as a design company, but also elevates uh, Tom. And if you look at the Marge Arts collection that we created together uh, back in 2012, if you look at that collection, that shoe, it has been called out as one of the most uh, important sneakers in the last decade. And it also has helped designers to look differently at footwear design. Now that's interesting because what we've seen, of course, is this explosion mm -hmm. of sneaker collectors willing to drop hundreds or even thousands of dollars for kinds for for the exclusive shoe that comes out at these little shops along Fairfax Avenue here in LA or some other places or online and I've heard about apps that are doing it all but you're saying finding a, a designer a, a, an artist who has nothing to do with shoes and bringing in his talent bringing in his sensibility and letting that influence the creation of a shoe ends up becoming influential far beyond, I think, probably even you anticipated, right? Yeah, it's the famous one-on-one uh, and one equals three. Uh, you do something together that you can't do on, in, on your own. If you look at uh, the new design that uh, results out of that, you will see that the new design has characteristics of both parties and creates a new form a new aesthetic or um, a new kind of product. And that's the beauty of it, because you create new space. And that is more important than, hey, let's collaborate because uh, we're just going to put our names together. Okay. So the collaboration is one component, but ultimately collaboration does, that, that is part of what we're talking about. We, we, we break it off into its own little ghetto of influencer marketing, but it's, that's kind of what you're talking about with influencer marketing too, right? It's finding that talent who has an audience, maybe not the specific already covered ground that Nike covers, and it's a lot of ground, but somebody who can bring in something new, bring in an audience that makes sense and connects to the brand or can connect in an interesting way, right? Mm -hmm. And also is an innovator. Uh, and that can make you think differently. That's the ultimate North Star, I think, uh, why you partner, uh, because you know that uh, together you can do something that you cannot do on your own, and that in its own creates new space, and that's innovation, right? Uh, I, I'm a strong believer that cross-pollination is the basis of innovation. The uh, bigger the level of cross-pollination, I, I strongly believe the, the, the bigger the impact uh, that uh, the result of the cross-pollination has for the future. 
And that's interesting because we certainly can look at uh, famous examples. There was a, an old, after World War II, MIT had this building off on the edge of campus that wasn't a great building. It had been used during the war for various research, but they put a bunch of random people in there, random researchers in various departments, but they ended up interacting with each other and created all these amazing new things because they were coming from different places. So you're saying, Part of what Nike was trying to do when you were there was trying to pull in some of that different DNA to stimulate different thinking with design and, and how they express their products. Mm -hmm. How do you take that experience and use it in the work that you do now? Mm -hmm. And what kind of work are you doing? Let's start with, uh, with the first question, right? It goes back to what I said earlier. Um, I'm, a, I'm a brand innovator. And I strongly believe that the basis of innovation is cross-pollination. That's why I love uh, the act of collaboration. Uh, and I take, this, this is also why, by the way, I'm a strong believer of diversity, uh, to drive uh, brands forward, to drive businesses forward, and to drive society forward. What am I doing at this moment and where do I want to go? It goes back to what I think is the, my own definition, my own brand, right? Uh, coming out of an amazing journey with Nike, uh, another saying that we use in sports is uh, rest and recover before you start training for your next Olympics. And uh, uh, it's amazing that I had some time also to do that and to think about, hey, but what is Drika about? Right? What is, what is my own brand about? And I would say my unique uh, capability, my uh, USP, if we keep it in marketing terms, is that I am able to bring uh, the world of um, the creative, the non-linear world, together with the linear world, the business world. And I strongly believe, and I have been doing that in and out Nike, right? Um, I strongly believe that when you bring those worlds together, that's when you create and drive innovation. That's when you uh, uh, create brand affinity and business growth. So uh, looking forward, I want to continue on that path. And for me, as I, at this moment, I do two things. One is uh, um, I consult as Brandrike, but also uh, I want to be part of, uh, as part of a, a bigger organization and uh, a bigger enterprise. So um, going forward, forward, I do want to go back in and work for organizations, enterprises that have strong narratives or want to build strong narratives that um, connect with consumers, but that also are looking for uh, leaders to uh, take challenges head on to, and to, to, solve, uh, to solve problems, right? Or to seek oppor opportunity. So that's, that's one thing. And I want to work uh, with these organizations as a leader to impact change, to, to solve problems. Now, the other thing, which is the, the personal ambitions, uh, ambition, because there's two, there's a professional and the, and the personal, and they go together. And it comes back to what you said earlier, is I'm a female leader, and I strongly, strongly believe in the power of diversity to move uh, businesses forward. Uh, so one of the things that I also want to do is look at the opportunity for me to work with ventures um, or endeavors, such as uh, Pivotal Ventures of Melinda Gates. Right? Um, I do want to meet her uh, one day too because I, I strongly believe that uh, with organizations.
organizations such as hers that say you, uh, striving for equality is one of our missions, that I can help them. So going back to what we said in the beginning of our conversation, if life uh, is about uh, conversations, if life is about connectivity, then, you know, in three weeks' time, if Melinda Gates will call me, I have proven that my theory is working. There we go. So Melinda, I'm sure you're listening to my uh, vastly, widely distributed podcast, Mine and Bill. What was it when you were growing up that made you interested in marketing and What's your perspective of how it may have evolved since those long ago days, of a few years back, when you were first interested in the field but hadn't gotten into it to where you are now? I mean, it seems like it's changed dramatically to me from the outside. I would go back to the essence of what I'm doing, and the essence is let's, let's start with the human race, right? There are many things, and one question that I get all the time, uh, having worked in all the continents as a marketeer, as a business leader, because I was a GM as well, uh, for one of the schools of uh, consumer connectivity, the biggest question that I get all the time is what is the difference uh, between consumers in China? Uh, or consume, what is the business, oh, Rick, you are in the business of youth culture, can you just, what is the biggest difference between young people in, in Europe uh, versus America? And I always say, maybe that's not the right question. The right question is, what is the similarity? And don't get me wrong, you need to understand the differences to understand what is not different, right? And one of the biggest things that has not changed over time, over the uh, thousands and thousands of years of existence of us all. And uh, one thing that is not different between uh, continents and human beings in China and the US is the need for storytelling. If there's one thing that uh, where marketing has not changed is that uh, in the end, it's about uh, understanding your consumers and inspiring them with great storytelling. That hasn't changed. Right? So if you look back to the marketing from then and the marketing from today, that is the common thread. And then, yes, there are many other things around that that uh, are different now, right? The touch points that we use today to uh, inspire and connect with our consumer have changed. The technologies have changed, but the need for strong storytelling hasn't. Right? And that is important as well. I think that's an interesting thing to think about because I think a lot of brands, for instance, think that, oh, I'll go and hire a bunch of nano influencers to say how great my product is and I'll give them all some free product or I'll give them a little bit of money or whatever and that'll be that. But that's not it. It's really about what's the story you're telling in concert, in collaboration with these people who have their own audiences, right? You have to think about how you tell a story in that very different way where you're giving to other people significant control in the way they tell the story about your brand in the hope that that does the one plus one equals three, right? Isn't that one of the significant challenges and opportunities here? Yeah, absolutely. And the stronger your story, the stronger your pull, right? Uh, the more that people will want to work with you huh? instead of push, pushing it out there. That's the, that's the beauty of it. I like to think at, uh, and I like to look at uh, influential marketing today. For me, it's a spectrum, 
right? And um, there's two extremes of the spectrum. On the one hand, there is the art form, right? Uh, working directly with uh, people, working direct, the direct uh, partnerships between uh, people that are have impact, right? The other extreme of the spectrum uh, is uh, much more the transactional stream, the transactional uh, area, uh, field, uh, where it's more looking at uh, influencers as uh, human billboards, right? You book them, right? Like you booked a billboard, but that, now it's human billboards. You're ridding the audience, basically, right? Uh, yeah, so, you know, so you have these extremes, right? But across these extremes, there's uh, the non-negotiable things that you need to take into consideration, which goes back to essence of human race, essence of people, which is, uh, it is just a fact, uh, whether you're a human billboard or someone you directly work with, that uh, if someone is passionate about you, as a brand about your product, then the engagement and the impact will just be bigger, right? And those are realities that in uh, both uh, cases of, it, of these extremes, uh, you need to take into consideration. So who's doing a great job? I know you probably have a fond uh, thought about Nike, but beyond Nike, who else is doing a good job telling the story of their brand and telling it in collaboration with other, either with influencers or other notables, who's doing an interesting job there? Again, it's going, you know, it's like, it's, very, it's, it's a challenging question because I love them all. But I would say both from, an, you, have inf you, have, you have people with impact, innovators that are leading society, that uh, take this role very seriously, and that are using their potential for a bigger purpose and for values that they um, want to protect and that they want to stand for. And you have brands out there who want to be a uh, purposeful uh, leader. And I believe in a future of business and marketing where you can be both, where you can say, look, and we, uh, we uh, you know, we have our targets, but we also want to strive to uh, execute against the values that we stand for and by the way that we integrate in our annual reports, right? And I am a positivist and I think the future will be uh, for these brands and for these uh, influencers and innovators that uh, think about the long term, instead about transactional short term. Looking forward to the future as you look out, where do you see things shifting? What's the next step? One of the things that I found very interesting in some of my conversations recently is with the death of the cookie in online advertising, Influencer marketing becomes very interesting because they actually have the first party data. You can actually target with their people. With A, they have an audience that's very well defined. B, they know that audience. And C, you have data to back up whether they're effective or not. It actually could be a really good time for influencer marketing. But beyond that, what do you see as opportunities and shifts coming in marketing? You know, retail's having a hard time. We've got a lot of stuff going on in the world stage right now with who knows what coronavirus is going to do to the economy and things like that. Where do you see things evolving at this point? My message to um, influencers and brands 
would be uh, think long term. And you have a choice, right? You can, ch you can choose short term, right? But I think if you decide to think long term, then there's certain rules of engagement that you need to respect, which is uh, uh, you need to have a strong story and you need to uh, connect in authentic ways uh, uh, to your audience. You also need to reinvent yourself using uh, technology, right? Then to brand marketeers, or business leaders out there, I would say that you need to find a marketing model or also a business model where you balance art and science, where you balance high touch uh, and find a balance between high touch and performance marketing. And even more, the new space is in the synergy between the touch points or the channels. The new space is between what you can do with uh, influencer marketing that is just one of the touch points or one of the channels in combination with your other channels. Just think about the potential of influencers in the middle of the digital experiences because now it's about that if you want to be the brand that leads but uh, can you imagine the new space which then means new business growth right uh, that you can create by uh, hybridizing the influencer space with uh, the future of where it's going in uh, digital retail at is and we're just at the beginning so the potential to create uh, to meet your targets and um, access your targets is in innovation is in new space and that's where it is for the brands of the future and the businesses of the future so being able to holistically integrate these things from the physical and the digital to to um, i think you were saying physical but digital might be the the the, the hybrid, word, that's right? the new one. We'll take that one. Yes, it's yes, it's, it's, it's coming out of China. Uh, uh, the, the consumers go in a store with their mobile. They don't see it as two different experiences. It is one experience. They go to the store, they buy on their iPhone. So as a brand, you cannot separate uh, these platforms anymore. They are one. Now, how can you leverage the influencer as a touch point, a medium and a platform within that new uh, experience of retail? How do you do that? And there's opportunity for brands to take the, leadership, the lead in that uh, and to create uh, the brand marketing models of the future. And that's our show. Thanks so much to Drika Lincolnect of Nike and now her own uh, brand, Drika, as she likes to put it. And Igor Vox, the CEO and founder of Creator IQ, for talking with me a bit about influencer marketing and the future of marketing as a whole in an era where cookies have gone away and the way we target and connect with uh, customers and, and brands is uh, wildly changing. It's an interesting time for this whole space, and I um, 
they think they put a little bit of light on the, on the subject. Uh, let me know what you think about this and where your company is going with um, influencer marketing and uh, broader marketing plans as the privacy issues become bigger, as other pressures on the way we do our business, the retail apocalypse continues, and so on and so forth. How are you shifting your marketing? Let me know. It turns out that the outlet where I uh, distribute and uh, syndicate this program, Anchor.fm, makes it very easy to leave a message. If you'd like an audio message, I'd love to hear from you if you'd like to do that. You also can reach me on LinkedIn at David L. Bloom and on Twitter at David Bloom, that's B-L-O-O-M, and uh, connect with me there and follow me and see all the stuff that I write for TubeFilter and Forbes and TV Rev and Next TV and other outlets and other podcasts of mine coming up. I'd love to hear from you. If you like what you hear here, please rate, review, share, subscribe. And if you really like what you hear, Anchor.fm makes it easy for you to Chip in a few bucks to keep this uh, media machine well-oiled and moving forward, um, just like you might send a, send a tip to your uh, favorite jazz pianist in the club that you're hanging at. And I'd certainly enjoy that and appreciate it a great deal and give you a shout-out if you wanted it. Uh, all that being said, this is David Bloom for Bloom and Tech, over and out. You've been listening to Bloom and Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone.